Father, I pray that as we hear your word today and as your spirit engages with us, that we'd be amazed at what you show us and what you give us at how you minister to us, how you speak to our needs and our situations, our fears, how you encourage us and strengthen us. Father, I pray that we would have a very real sense of encounter with you today. Father, I feel strongly you have something for us in your word. and Your spirit will deliver it to us in a way that we can receive it, respond to it. So, in line with the words of Scripture, I pray that he who has ears to hear would hear, and eyes to see would see. Father, what we hear would be you. What we see would be your glory and your goodness, and there would be a result of that, in that, that we would trust you, that we would love you, that we would rest in you, we'd find joy and hope in you. Uh, so, Father, I pray that you take this word and cause it to bear on us. Lord, may it not be lost, but may we be doers of it and not hearers only. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 27. It's a fairly long chapter, and I'm going to break it up into some portions with some thoughts and applications along the way. And I would just encourage you this morning, particularly, though not particularly different than any other Sunday, but specifically because there's so much content here, but if you have a good pen, if you pull it out, make sure that it works. Which means if it's one of those blue Calvary pens, you might want to grab two or three. <laughs> but get one that works. And write down what God shows you from this text today and what God wants you to do with it. Acts chapter 27. We're coming to the culmination, obviously, just by chapter number, but in storyline of the book of Acts. And this journey that Paul has been on, this journey of God for the sake of the gospel, for his own namesake, getting the gospel out to so many different regions and places and peoples, is close to reaching its peak, and it's going to get to Rome. And that's just what we've been seeing all along. This has been Paul's intent. This has been God's intent, more importantly. That the most important city in the world, the city that it said all roads lead to, the city with greatest influence and power, is about to hear the gospel through its greatest living ambassador at that time, the Apostle Paul. Verse 1, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which is about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The we, of course, is Luke, who's accompanying Paul through this. Luke, both historian, Luke, theologian, recording these events, and, and Aristarchus. Paul is getting unusual treatment. These two were accounted him somewhat as his servants. And so Paul was treated differently than the other prisoners on that ship. Those presumably headed to Rome to face death, perhaps in, a, in an arena. Perhaps if they're physically sound enough, they might be trained for gladiatorial combat, but their end is certain. Uh, Paul's treated a bit differently. So the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, and he gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed against the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. 
We sailed slowly for a number of days and, and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Now again, Paul is about to go to the place where he must go. He must go. And when I use the word must, I mean by the will of God. This is what God has been working out all along. And you and I have the ability to see the story a bit differently than those who are caught right in the middle of it. Because when you're in the middle of it, you can't really see what God is doing. You certainly can't see what, what's coming next. And often you don't know why what's happening to you is happening to you. Uh, given the benefit of reading the story and seeing what God was doing, we get a beautiful view of both what's visible to them and what's invisible to them. What they have control of, but what God is doing behind the scenes. And so God is bringing him to Rome. And remember, this is exactly what he told Paul in a vision. In chapter 23, verse 11, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. You must. But here's how you and I need to interpret this event. And you're seeing this, the difficulty already developing. And this isn't the first of the difficulties Paul has faced. He's been through many trials, five different defenses we've seen already. We've seen all sorts of opposition. We've seen all sorts of oppression. We've seen all sorts of antagonism. We've seen all sorts of pain and suffering. And now even this journey, the one that God said he has to take, is shaping up to be difficult. Just because Paul or us are following God's will doesn't mean that the journey is going to be easy or without trials. I just want to lay that out there as an objective statement. Just because you're doing what God wants you to do, just because you're being obedient to God, just because you're walking faithfully with Christ, just because you're doing what it is you think God's will is for you, does not mean there's no promise, implied or otherwise, in Scripture that it's going to be easy. The way of God is not necessarily, in fact, I would, I would say not often, an easy way. Just because it's God's way doesn't mean it's going to be smooth and it's going to be pleasant, it's going to be easy. When Paul writes Romans 8, 28, that we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him, or another translation would render it this way, all things work together for good. That doesn't mean that every part of the journey is always pleasant or smooth or without struggle or hardship. It just means that the end result is always good. God is working an ultimate and lasting good. And there are a lot of struggles up until doesn't mean it's going to be easier without trials. So what began very positively, I'm headed to Rome now. I mean, treated well. I'm not treated like a, a typical prisoner. I'm not down in the galley. I'm not chained to the ship itself. I'm even able to, to leave and engage with my friends and find support. It's about to take a very negative turn. Look at verse 9. Since much time had passed, and why is this critical? Well, they had left in the fall... And now after many days at sea, the season is changing, the conditions are changing, and the seas are changing. Since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. And Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. 
Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Calda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing they would run aground in the, on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. I'm not a sailor and don't know much about sailing at all, and there's really not much to add to that story than what you just saw, but I hope you can envision the seriousness of it. They're totally at the will of the wind and the waves. They began to throw over everything they possibly could they thought would help them, the very cargo itself, and also their own supplies. And to the point, realizing they had zero control over their own fate, they despaired of any hope whatsoever. Winter is approaching. Paul, who is a seasoned traveler, we know. How do we know Paul's a seasoned traveler? We've seen his missionary journeys. You can open up your Bibles if you've got Bibles with maps in the back, and you can see the islands and places he traveled. He's well accustomed to being on these waters. He knows the dangers of continuing the journey during this season, during this time. And so what Paul does is he warns them. And I, I think this is an important theological point for those of you trying to figure out the challenges of the text, the nuances of the text. Paul's not giving a prophecy here. This is not in conflict with what he's going to say later or what God is going to say to him later. He's simply giving a warning about what is likely to happen if they continue this way. Sirs, I perceive that. You catch that? That's what Paul said. I, I perceive that. I've been out here long enough. I've been through this long enough. I've seen these seas long enough to know if we keep going here, there's a good chance we're not going to make it. In fact, I don't think we will make it if we keep going ahead. And let me make a couple of points about faith here for a moment. Okay, you can never doubt or never question Paul's faith in any of this, right? This is one of the values of going through the book of Acts in its context. If you take things out in snippets, you might say, hey, where's his faith? Where's his, where's his confidence in God? No, we don't have to doubt that. We've seen it again and again and again. This is a small snippet of the story. But faith is not presumption. Faith is not presumption. It's not looking at the situation in front of you and the circumstances all around you and just presuming that they don't matter. Just because this is what God wants you to do, you can jump off the cliff. You can dive into the sea. You can do whatever you want to do. That's, that's not faith. That's foolishness. We're not called to presume upon God. It's not presumption. And faith doesn't preclude common sense. You say, I'm trying to act by faith. Well, God has given you a mind. He's given you rational thought. He's giving you life experiences that you can assess, that you can put together. And, and faith is not opposed to those things. Now, here's where I need a little interaction from you. If what I'm saying makes sense, nod your head because I've got a lot more to say, but if it's not, I'm going to press this point. Common sense. We shouldn't separate the spiritual from the normal, the natural. Listen, God's giving you a brain. Use it. Think carefully about what you ought to do. And Paul just looks at the situation and says, guys, what you're doing what you're doing doesn't make any sense. We should stop here, but they, they dismiss his words. So the storm now is so intense that the men had lost all hope. Don't, don't miss that. Okay, don't miss how serious, how serious the situation is. 
It's one thing that the soldiers would lose hope because, well, they're not sailors. It's just another thing that the prisoners would lose hope because they can't do anything about it. If the ship goes down, I can't imagine a worse situation to be in than to be shackled to it. But the sailors themselves, the pilot of the ship, the captain, everyone, universally, this is a hopeless situation. I want you to see that. But there's one person who doesn't share the hopeless despair of the rest. And that person is Paul. Paul had the hope that only God's sovereignty can give. Now, I want to pause here on this point just for a moment because if we don't think of how this actually applies and works out in our real life, this can be one of those statements that is just very theoretical, hypothetical, kind of, I don't know, esoteric, theological, not really bearing on real life. But Paul took hope in the fact that these circumstances this, this storm, this situation, is not all-telling. It's not all-knowing. It's not all-powerful. It's not in control. But God is. So sometimes we have to simply take stock of a situation and remind ourselves, God's still in control. It looks this way, and it feels this way. And my response has gone this way, but that's not the whole story. God is in control. I take you back to a verse I read just a moment ago, Acts 23, 11. The Lord stood by him, and what did he say to him? Take courage. Take courage. That doesn't simply mean be brave. This would also be how we would derive the word encouragement from. Be encouraged by. Take strength from. Draw your confidence out of this. Take courage. You must also testify in Rome. The must is not just an imperative. The must is not, Paul, you have to do this. Whatever it costs, keep going. Even if it kills you, you must do it. That's part of it. It's part imperative. But it's also promise. You must. This is my will. And I will accomplish what I've sent for you to do. It must happen. For God to be God, this must happen. Take confidence in me. Take courage in me. I want to read something to you this morning, just for a moment, just as kind of an aside. But on this point of sovereignty and hope. Because I want you to know the sort of hope I'm talking about that comes from trusting in and believing in and applying the truth that God's in control no matter what. So let me read something to you that's, that's powerful, a bit painful, uh, but I promise ultimately helpful to you. This is from a book called Therefore I Have Hope. The author is Cameron Cole, and he writes from both a firsthand experience, but also very much from a biblical perspective on God's sovereignty and why it matters. And I'm going to read you just a small section. In times of tragedy and suffering, well-meaning pastors and friends frequently offer a religious word that momentarily appears helpful, but proves hopeless in the end. As sufferers wrestle with how a loving good God could allow such painful, wicked things to occur in our lives, people want to say, God didn't have anything to do with this. After the attacks on the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001, a pastor spoke on a radio program about how we can make sense of such evil. The pastor declared, 
that God had nothing to do with these attacks and said to listeners, Satan is still the prince of the world. A colleague of mine heard the same sentiment expressed at the funeral following the suicide of a middle-aged woman. The pastor spoke directly to her family from the pulpit and assured them, you need to know that God didn't have anything to do with this. I listened to the podcast of a parent who had tragically lost a young child through an accidental death. She said that her pastor reminded her that God is not a grand puppeteer, quote-unquote, sitting in heaven orchestrating all the events of the world. But as a friend, let me sit down with you and tell you the immediately hard but ultimately hopeful truth about your worst. God did and does have something to do with your tragedy. I know this sounds like a cruel statement, but stay with me. There's hope in the end. God did and does have something to do with your tragedy. There's both a fundamental and practical reason why the notion of God's limited involvement in suffering breeds harm and hopelessness. Let me tell you what I hear when people say God didn't have anything to do with this. I hear that God's hands are tied. I hear that God took his eyes off the road when your worst occurred. I hear that Satan is just as great, mighty, and sovereign as God. I hear that God just isn't that powerful. He's impotent. I hear that God is not in control. I hear that God is weak. None of these statements resembles the God of the Bible. The witness of Scripture testifies to a God who remains sovereign in every moment. The Bible says that God controls the forces of nature. Psalm 147, 15 and 18. His providence rules over plants and animals. Jonah 4, 6, Matthew 10, 29. He ordains random events. Proverbs 16, 33, Acts 1, 23 through 26. He reigns over rulers and nations. Job 12. He controls major disasters. Lamentations 3, Amos 3. He has power over the spiritual forces of evil. 1 Samuel 16, Matthew chapter 8. If God controls all these elements of existence, all of which are far less significant to him than you, his child, then certainly he reigns in the story of your life, even in your worst. A story my mentor, Reverend Frank Limehouse, labeled as the most significant moment in his early ministry career, illustrates why the sovereignty of God is so instrumental in maintaining hope during the season of your worst nightmare. Frank, as a seminary student, was shadowing a hospital chaplain when they were called to a room where a woman's son had been pronounced dead after a tragic car accident. The woman lamented over and over again, why did God do this to me? Why did God do this to me? The chaplain, trying to be helpful, inserted, ma'am, God didn't have anything to do with your son's death. To this statement, the wailing Yet wise woman pointedly looked at the chaplain in the eyes and replied, Don't you take away the only hope that I have. Behind the grieving mother's remark lies the hope that the sovereignty of God enables. If God is not fully sovereign in your suffering, then you cannot trust that he is fully in control of your healing and recovery. If God's hands are tied when the worst enters your life, then maybe his powers are also limited in helping you. If God is not fully sovereign in your suffering, you cannot trust He is fully in control. Moments will come in your worst when it feels like God has left the building. The scriptural word concerning the sovereignty of God assures you that even in the moments when it feels as if God has abandoned you and your plight, you can know objectively that God remains in control in these moments of fear and despair. He says, in times of tragedy, people often cite Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He says, too often we overlook two pivotal aspects of this verse. First, we misunderstand the definition of good. We tend to think that good involves prosperity, happiness, and comfort. From the context, however, good involves believers being conformed to the image of Christ. 
Fruit being born for God's glory and God drawing his people into deeper fellowship. This form of good often comes out of deep pain, but God does work good in everything. And secondly, we overlook that we are called according to his purpose. The purpose of God is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We can't always see the redemptive activity of God, neither the mundane or the difficult, but God promises that every element fits into a grand redemptive story whose significance and beauty are far greater than we conceive. For me, I find hope in trusting that my son, and this is where he tells his own story, died because God determined before the foundation of the earth that Cam would live three years and 55 days. My son died for a reason. He died that people may see the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ and that God may fully redeem and perfect the broken world. Cam's death is neither random nor meaningless. I may not necessarily see a fraction of the ways God accomplishes this, but his word promises me that it's true. And let me tell you the truth. Your worst is not random or meaningless. God is in control of your life. He doesn't take his eyes off the road when your worst occurs. He isn't taking his eyes off the road as he restores you. You need to know that your worst is not a meaningless accident. God has redemptive purposes for everything that enters your life. You will not see the full extent of those purposes until you get to heaven, but you can trust that the pain you're enduring is not ultimately pointless. The most important thing for you to remember is that God's, is only that God's goodness and love for you supersedes his sovereignty. The cross reassures you that even in the most painful of circumstances, God remains fully in control and fully good. Look at verse 21. Based on that sort of encouragement, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. Remember the warning? You should have listened to me and not sailed from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold... God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have found, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. What a profound statement. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. Paul says you should have all listened to me. And this could have been avoided. You should have listened to me. Again, it reminds us of what Paul said at the beginning. We should be people of faith and action. I mean, it's faith and action. They go hand in hand. We shouldn't separate the two. We're not just cruising along, letting God take care of every detail, regardless of what we choose to do, regardless of decisions we make, not worrying about if our decisions or actions have any consequence. They do. Your actions have consequences and impact. So choose wisely. Do the right thing. Be a person of faith and action. Believe and do. Trust God and act. Pray and, and move. Do something with it. Faith without works is, is dead faith. It's meaningless faith. It's empty faith. It's superfluous faith. Superficial faith. If I were to give you one just deep theological statement, something worthy of the scholars and the ancients, I would say this. Trust God and don't do stupid things. Trust God and don't do stupid things. So many of the things that we do that we put off on someone else's responsibility or we say, well, God allowed or God calls or simply because we do stupid things. Don't blame God for stupidity and disobedience and ignorance. 
Faith calls us to action. And yet, here's the comforting assurance and all of that. Even in the midst of my stupid things, what if I have done something foolish, short-sighted, ignorant, lazy, unthinking? You provide the, the adjective. What if I have? Take heart. Why? Because God's will is stronger and more decisive than our own. Are you happy about that? Are you glad to know that? That in this world, you are not ultimately decisive. Do you bring about consequences, painful and pleasurable, good and bad? Absolutely you do. But God's will is stronger than yours, and his will is more decisive than yours. We thank God that we're in his hands. So listen to the things that Paul said. Here's the storm. Here's our response to it. But here's what I know. I will appear before the emperor. God said I must. I will. God's must is my I will. God will save us all he pronounced. God made a promise to Paul, it's not just you that I'm going to get to Rome, all those people that are with you, and I'm not going to lose a one. Don't lose sight of that. We're going to come back to that in a minute. I'm not going to lose any of them. They're mine. I'll get you there. God's going to save us all. Only the ship is going to be lost. And he said it with, with confidence. How does God do it? God said it would happen. Paul will get to Rome. None of the people will be lost except the ship. Now, how does God make sure that what he told Paul plays out? How does God see to it? Well, the words we would use there are means and ends. Means and ends, or the providence of God. Sometimes we use the word miracle when the word we really should be using is, is providence. Providence. Providence, how God's hand moves. How God works through situations and individuals good and bad, right or wrong, how God works in every way to accomplish the things that he wants to accomplish, bringing all those pieces together to an end that suits him. Means and ends. Look what happens next, verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding, and they found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found, I'm sorry, they found 20, they found 15, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern, and they prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion, the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes to the ship's boat, and they let it go. You see what's happening here? They're getting closer and closer to land. They determine that it's getting more and more shallow. They're afraid they're going to be lost on the rocks. And so now they're plotting their own way out, their own escape. Paul's already told them no one is going to be lost, not even one. But now they're taking it into their own hands. And so now Paul tells the centurion, here's the condition, here's the warning. Unless these men stay in the ship, they cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. All right, so do you see the, do you see the tension now? God has promised and told Paul, none will be lost. And now Paul is telling them, you must stay on the ship or you will be lost. Let me try to explain this in short order in the limited window of time. 
God is interested, and not just interested, but involved in. He's not just concerned about. He's taking care of the details in both the objective. What's the objective here? Get Paul to Rome. It just happens to be to the benefit of those with him that Paul is under God's sovereign care, so they get to go with him. How do you get Paul to Rome? And the process. How is Paul going to get there? And all the things that God's going to be teaching along the way. So keep that in mind. God is working in the means and the end. The end, I'm going to get you to Rome, and I'm going to fulfill my promise to take these others with you. But I'm also involved in the means of how I'm going to get you there. What it's going to take to get you there. Think of this sort of in salvation parallels. If we look at this as sort of a a foreshadowing of how God saves us, takes us from where we used to be to where we're going to be, and he says, I will get you there. I will will secure you along the path until I deliver you safely on those golden shores. And we think of this as the sanctifying work of God along the way. God is relentlessly committed to our sanctification. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ. I began it. I'm keeping it. I'm going to complete it. That's the promise of God for all those who are His. You see that in Romans 8 and 9. I began it. We'll carry it out all the way to the end. So God has promised the safe passage of all on board, everybody. But how is He going to accomplish it? And in, in two simple words, promise and warning. Promise and warning. Here's what I will do. And now here's what you must do in response. So he warns them, I'm going to take all of you on this ship to the other side. But don't leave the ship. Don't leave the ship. I've got you. I'll carry you all the way to the other side. Again, consider some salvation parallels for a moment. We think of our own salvation. And sometimes we... We scratch our heads because we're perplexed or we argue and debate. Um, some of those terms that are, are clearly biblical but a little outside of our comfort zone, like predestination or election, chosen by him before the foundations of the earth, as the scripture says. And we don't know how this exactly works because we're such advocates of our own freedom and self-determination. But this much we do know. When we're offering the gospel to someone, when we're sharing the good news of Christ and how their sins can be forgiven, we don't ask them, friend, neighbor, son, daughter, are you elect? No, we charge them to repent and believe the gospel. And we know that those who repent and believe the gospel are saved. And so God's objective, that those whom he has chosen will come to him, is accomplished through this response of faith. Faith is this necessary instrument of salvation. It's not unnecessary. We won't stand before God one day and be asked, were you chosen in advance or not? It'll be those who have believed and repented, set opposed to those who don't. So in this sense, our belief and repentance is necessary to the choosing, electing, predestining work of God. He doesn't do one without the other. It's the promise and it's the warning. And the same warnings and admonitions are the things that we saw when we were in the book of Hebrews. Those warning passages. What are those warning passages telling us? Well, we believe that God will secure us to the end. In the same same 
neighborhood of scriptures in the Gospel of John where Jesus spoke of his drawing power and his receiving promise, he also speaks of his keeping power. They're in my hands, and no one can take them out of my hands. I will give those that the Father has given me back to him. How does he do that? He does that through these warning passages. Don't jump ship. Don't abandon the faith. Don't apostatize. What are the means? As he warns us, we respond, and we believe the promise, and we stay, and he keeps us. And in the end, what he said he would do, he does. And he works both, so we don't disregard the warnings. Just as we didn't disregard the call to have faith and believe. It's all part and process of how God accomplishes his purposes. Look at Paul's second message of encouragement to them then. After he tells them, don't leave the boat, they cut off the lifeboats, they cut off any means of escape, they let them go, and they trust him. They accept what he said. And his day was about to dawn. Remember, they had been praying for this, right? We just saw that before. They are praying that day would come and they'd be saved. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you, take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. How does God keep us? Completely, totally, not partially. He takes us secure and hold to the end. And when he had said these things, he took bread. And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it, and he began to eat. And then they were all encouraged, and they took some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons on the ship. That's one of those eyewitness details that gives us confidence of the authenticity of the story. Luke records something very specific. There were 276 of us there. And how many were encouraged? All. How many ate? All. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. What does Paul say to them? Take food. They hadn't, hadn't been eating because the seas were that tumultuous. No one could hold a, a bite down. That gives them hope of what's about to happen. Take food. Regain strength. Choose hope. Hope is not just a feeling. It's not, it's not just a reactive emotion. Hope is not just a result at the end when the consequences and the situations and circumstances have finally run their course. That, that's not when hope begins. Hope for a believer who's trusting in the sovereignty of God and what God has promised chooses hope. It's at the beginning, and it's at the middle, and it's all the way through, and we see the worth of it at the end. Choose hope. They're eating. They're giving thanks to God. They're breaking bread together. Listen, you can worship in the storm even before you see your salvation. Otherwise, you and I would have no cause to worship until we get to the other side. God, we're going we're gonna to hold out until we see you carry this thing all the way through. We're going we're gonna to reserve judgment the, the jury's still out on your goodness, God. It's still out on your mercy, God. It's still out on your grace, God. I'll celebrate when I reach the other side. That's not what we do. We gather. Every Lord's Day. And more than anything else, 
we give thanks to God for our salvation. That you have saved us. You have delivered us. You are saving us. You are delivering us. You will save us. You will deliver us. We do it over and over and over and over until we see it. Until faith is sight. Faith operates in the already, but not yet, doesn't it? Isn't that what faith is? The evidence of things not seen? We have faith. We sing these songs by faith. We read these scriptures and receive them by faith. We share communion by faith. We encourage one another by faith that the best is yet to come. And faith thanks God in advance for that. They're still on the boat. They have not yet been delivered to safety, but they're giving God thanks. To me, that's a pretty sweet picture of salvation. Still here, still on a storm-tossed, tumult-filled sea, but I'll give God thanks because I know He's going to deliver me. I know He's going to hold me. Let me get to the end and how the shipwreck and providence all shows up here for a moment. Stay with me. This is where it gets really fascinating. Stay with me. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. You picture it. So they cast off the anchors, and they left them in the sea. So there's no, they can't go back to the old method now. They've cast all their hope on beaching this ship there. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But, striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. Now, that's exactly what Paul said would happen, right? They, they thought there was another way. They, they'd been promised that the journey to the end was going to be difficult. The ship is going to be lost, he told them. That was prophecy, not prediction. But they think it's going to be otherwise. You know, now we've trusted, we've, we've believed, it's going to be easy now. Again, it's a, it's a metaphor for our salvation. He, he saved me, I, I've trusted him. Now it's going to be good, now I've got prosperity and blessing and it's smooth sailing ahead. Look, there's a, a beach. And they hit the rocks and the ship is wrecked. Listen to the response. Verse 42. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. Whoa, whoa, hold up. What a twist of the story. God promised Paul, I'm going to protect every one of them. Not a hair on their head is going to be harmed. I think killing them harms the hairs on their head. Here's a twist. Is, Is everything about to come undone all of a sudden? Verse 43, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. You get this this scenario? If you can swim, swim. If not, hang on to this, and you'll float there. They wanted to kill everybody, and the centurion orders them not to and stops it. This is what I mean by providence. There's a theological word for this. Okay, I share this with you here on a Wednesday night. This is the benefit, by the way, and yes, this is a commercial plug. Come on Wednesday nights. The idea is called concurrence. It's that God is working, 
At the same time, man is acting. But remember what I said earlier, the will of God is stronger than the strength of men, and the decisions of God are more decisive than the choices of men. And so while both are working, one is primary and one is secondary. There's concurrence here. And it tells us this, and, and I hope this will make sense. Again, I, I know my time is short to explain a, a deep subject. God's sovereignty and providence doesn't mean that everything happens automatically and without human participation. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we're not talking about we just sit back and go with the flow. We're just along for the ride. We just sit there and let God take the wheel. I'm not saying we don't yield to God's control. I'm not saying we don't submit to his guidance or we don't follow his commands. I'm simply saying it's not, it's not automatic and without human participation. I mean, you've got a clash here, right? You've got a clash between utter human wickedness. I mean, the easy ability to just dispense with human life. I'll just kill them all so that no one escapes. We'll, we'll kill them all. You've got this utter human wickedness, but you've got this over, uh, overruling divine providence. Both are happening at the same time. And it's not as if everything, again, is just automatic and we'll just sit back and watch it unfold. And we don't have to do anything. No choices have to be made. No right or wrong decisions have to ensue. No boldness, no courage. No, that's not what we're talking about. Faith requires action. But it's also not being worked out in hopelessness or despair, as if there's no control, as if we're just drifting. I mean, that's what they felt, right? For a long time, they've just been drifting. They were at the will of the sea, but they're not. It's not as if we don't have any hope or security or assurance or confidence or promise to guide us. You see, God's, God's providence, God's sovereignty is not something that's discovered in a formula. As soon as you try to formulize this into convenient statements, easy statements, formulas. You lose the sense of it. This is flesh and blood stuff. It's you do this and do what is right and act according to what you believe is right with faith. And you trust God. And you trust God to work. And God to be in control. So, so close to the fulfillment of this promise and almost all is nearly lost. That's the soldier's plan in verse 42. Almost all is nearly lost. The soldier's plan is to kill the prisoners. But one man made a choice. And that choice resulted in the deliverance of all. So again, I believe that God is sovereign. And I believe in the end, just as Paul did, that he's going to get to Rome. But do you think for a minute that the wise and bold and good decision of that centurion didn't matter? Are you kidding me? It matters. It matters what you do. And it matters how you respond. The centurion wishing to save Paul kept them. See, God usually works through these secondary causes. The secondary causes are the causes that we see. Why did the prisoners not die? What's the answer? Because the centurion gave the command and wouldn't let the soldiers kill him, and he's in charge. They respected his authority. Is that a true statement? Yes, it's a secondary cause. The primary cause is because God had determined that they wouldn't. 
Again, this is concurrence, coterminous actions, not determinous, not just one man deciding, but God is at work in this. So while he's choosing and deciding and acting, God is acting through him. God is affecting something. You see, God works through the free choices that we make. He works through them. He works through our wills, not upon our wills. There's a distinction there. He works through those wills. Do we understand this fully? Absolutely not. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it whichever way he will. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that the king decides one thing and God vetoes it and chooses something else. It means that God, in some way that's beyond our scope, is affecting and working through his will so that what he chooses. What about Ezra? Chapter 1, verse 1, the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a mighty king, a dominating king, a conquering king, The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that it might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus so that he made a proclamation. Who made the proclamation? Who made the choice? Cyrus. But what was happening primarily behind the scenes? God. How God does this, how he puts thoughts and desires, that's mysterious. But we see that he does it. For those of you who've been, again, with us on Wednesday nights as we've been going through the Exodus, we've seen this with Pharaoh again and again and again. So God's sovereign providence stands over and above our actions. And he's working out his will through our wills without violating that sense of our will. The centurion chose that, but God was at work. He works through free choices. God's ways of working then are just beyond our understanding. They're beyond our understanding. I can't explain them, nor do I think they can be explained. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. Neither are my ways your ways, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Am I now going to be able to explain that? Can anyone? Or Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. There's just a sense in which Trying to figure out God is futile. It's impossible. And why is that? Like Job, God is to us. He doesn't explain himself, nor does he need to. But he he acts, he works. So look at the conclusion of the story. Beautiful conclusion of the story is the last half of verse 44. And so it was. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. I mean, there's a lot of drama and intrigue in the in-between. From the time of the promise to the time of the deliverance of the promise. But in the end, so it was. Why? Because God saw to it. God saw to it. Guaranteeing the end, which he did. God is at work in the means, which he was. How was he at work? He made a promise. He gave warnings. Paul gave encouragements. He was changing people's thinking, hearts, minds, so that in the end, and this is what's critical for for all of us, what God promises is always what happens. How many of you believe that? What God promises is always what happens. How important is it for us to believe that? 
Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the Reformation, wrote this about trusting in the promises of God. If you hesitate to believe or are too proud to acknowledge that God foreknows and wills all things, not contingently, in other words, not based on what you do or don't do, which changes him, but necessarily and immutably, unchangeably, how can you believe and trust and rely on his promises? If you hesitate to believe that he does what he wills, how can you trust his promises? When he makes promises, you ought to be out of doubt that he knows and can and will perform what he promises. Otherwise, you will be accounting him neither true nor faithful, which is unbelief, the height of irreverence, and a denial of the Most High God. Believe that certainly, infallibly, immutably, and necessarily God knows, wills, and will perform what he promises. So let me leave you with just a final few takeaways, and I'll do them quickly for your sake. Just some final encouragements from the story. God is in the details. He's in the details. The details matter. Choices we make, things we believe, turns we take, God's in all those details, and they matter, and they affect people. Number two, we, we steer our ships, as it were, and pardon the analogy, but don't forget that God's in control of the seas. They soon learn that their sense of autonomy and sovereignty and freedom was extremely limited. We're going to sell here, 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 and here. But they did not, for they could not, for they lacked that level of autonomy. Do you have freedom? Yes. Do you have control? Yes. Do you have power? Yes. But it's meager. It's meager power. Again, Luther said it's fundamentally necessary and healthy for Christians to acknowledge that God foreknows nothing uncertainly, that he foresees purposes and does all things according to his infallible will. His power is greater. His freedom is all-encompassing. His control is complete. That's God. And if you're doing what you know and believe God wants you to do, right now, this speaks to your situation, but this is incredibly hard. I mean, I'm just putting this on the most simple terms. I'm thinking through a, just a basic me lens. If I'm doing what Paul was doing, facing what Paul faced, I certainly would have at least entertained the idea on multiple occasions to quit. This is just not, this is not worth it. It's not worth it. And I may could even justify that decision with theology, bad theology or good theology badly applied. If I don't do it, someone else will. If, if I'm disobedient, God will find another servant, and maybe those things are true. That's hardly the point. If you're doing what you believe God wants you to do, if you're faithful, if you're walking with Him, I'm not talking about trying to find a target on a distant wall of what God's will is for your life 20 years out. I'm talking about today. I'm walking with Him. I'm trusting Him. I'm obeying Him. I'm trying to be faithful to Him. I'm trying to honor Him. I'm loving Him. Keep doing it. Don't Stick with it. Don't abandon ship. Don't quit now. If you want one simple application from all the journeys of Paul, it's, man, stay the course, stay the course, stay the course. And lastly, you're probably not the only person on the ship. I don't think it's coincidental that Luke includes, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a number 276. By the way, there are 276 of us here, too. It's hardly ever just about you. The story that God is working in your life, 
the providence of God in your life, how God is leading you to distant shores and how God is carrying you through difficult storms, how God is carrying out his purposes in your life, please understand this. It's not just about you. What you do will have impact on others. It can have eternal impact on others. Decisions matter. God grants wisdom to choose rightly. He wants us to have faith. And he wants us to do good and trust him. I'm going to ask you if you'd bow. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the encouragement of your word. Thank you for the promises of Scripture. Thank you that you've given us the ability to choose hope. Thank you, Father, that you have redeemed us from our brokenness and even from our broken wills that were so bent on sin and enslaved to them so that every free choice we made apart from Christ even those choices that we thought were good, all that righteousness was just a filthy rag apart from grace. It is only through your grace that we are free to truly choose good and do it. Father, thank you for rescuing us. And thank you for promising that the rescue will succeed. Thank you for the assurance that we have right now, whatever our situations look like, that you are a good and loving and strong Father who is intimately involved in all the details of our lives. And Father, thank you because in our limited understanding, our limited ability to perceive and grasp, we can relax and rest and trust in you. You're doing things bigger and better and longer and sweeter more perfect than we can ever imagine for the sake of those who belong to you. Father, help us also understand that the fact that you're sovereign in control does not preclude us from doing what is good and right and wise and godly, for living lives of faithfulness. So Lord, I just pray that the result of what we've heard and seen in your word today and what your spirits ministered to us personally has blessed us with hope unique hope not wishful thinking but certain assurance because of christ our savior our king in his name we pray amen